0: Good morning, again it's the privilege to bring the word as we've already had opportunity to share in a very special service through music and through our worship through the Lord's Supper and it's always a privilege to share the word of God and to preach it And to know that I have the joy of knowing that I'm the only thing that stands between you and lunch. (laughs) And so don't look at your watches. Don't listen to your stomachs, even though it might be very clear. We trust the Lord will continue to feed us today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We continue. Our study through this letter that Paul wrote from prison, one of a number of letters that he wrote after he was arrested and was sitting in Rome awaiting to give testimony to the charges that were brought against him in many ways, very unjust ways, but it was an opportunity that God was going to bring him before the greatest leader of the known world uh, to speak the gospel. Uh, We have moved our way, we'll, Lord willing, finish chapter 2 today, uh, depending on how hungry I get, knowing that there's food over there. You can't just have to get that out of my mind. But we have, uh, thankfully, through the service of other men, good preaching men, uh, to remind us of what the Apostle Paul has been teaching all of us through the centuries, And uh, just a few, uh, well, it's been more than a few weeks ago, but Richard probably thinks it's been a long time ago, but it hasn't been that long ago that he reminded us from chapter one that at all costs we are to live as citizens of heaven, that we should live in a way that's worthy of the gospel that has changed our life. And that was a reflection of even what Pastor Chad had preached before that about how we are to, regardless of where we are, we are to... To live a life of thanks and, and, and gratitude and service to God. And that whether we are living or whether we are dying, we count that as great gain. And should God choose to leave us here, as the Apostle Paul concluded, that's great because that is for your good. However, if he wants to take me on, if he wants to allow my prison stay be the last day that I spend on this earth, then I will be with Christ and that is great gain. Having the proper focus of wherever we're at living that way. And to have had Pastor Tim over the last couple of messages from the book of Philippians remind us about that distinct Christian attitude of humility. And how it was exhibited in Christ and how it should continue to be demonstrated in our life as we work out our own salvation. But knowing that it is God who is willing and working to accomplish what he wants to do. So if all that being said, um, I'm left to give you somewhat of a description of two men, uh, examples, if you will, of humble service. However, I'm going, Pastor Tim and I were talking last week about um, we really could have backed this up and started uh, a couple of verses earlier from this message. What I'm going to do, I'm actually going to back up a little further than that. I want to try to capture the idea of humility today, not that it hasn't already been presented very well from this second chapter of Philippians, but I think it will help us as we kind of wrap things up in chapter 2 to understand these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that are examples of humble service, to be reminded ourselves of just what does that mean, what does that look like? So, as we think about our theme through this book, that our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to our Master's work, our will and work as he has ordered it, for our good and for his glory, to keep all the things that we've already learned in mind. But as we think about this idea of humble service, to remember as Andrew Murray in his short little book, but very potent book about humility, titled Humility... Says Jesus found his glory in taking form, taking the form of a servant. So also he said to us, Whosoever will be the greatest among you shall be your servant. He simply taught us the blessed truth that there is nothing so divine and heavenly as being the servant and helper of all. Jesus Christ, as Pastor Tim made it very clear, clearly demonstrated that as someone who would not think it of any matter at all to be equal with God, humbled himself. And he calls us to do the same thing as we work out our own salvation. But it's all to the glory. Jesus, again, repeating the words of Andrew Murray, Jesus found his glory in taking the form of servant. That is where God's glory came from. That is where it was good for Christ to be obedient to the Father. And that is where it is our good when we are obedient to the Father to take that form of a servant. Not that we have, as a matter of fact, a servant for us in our sin is a step up. We're nothing. But by the grace of God, we have been given the privilege and the opportunity to become a servant for him. So let's not get that confused. However, taking upon ourselves the form of a servant is necessary for us to bring the ultimate glory to God. He goes on. To, Andrew Murray goes on to say, Humility is simply man's acknowledging the truth of his position as man and yielding to God his place. So we can begin a productive life of service. We can actually fulfill uh, this theme that we're talking about from the book of Philippians. We can find our life fulfilling when we joyfully surrender. What are we surrendering to? We're surrendering to the master's will. We're understanding who we are as man, and we're recognizing God, and we're giving him his rightful place. So that as we understand him being God, not us, he has ordered something that's going to be not only for our good, but ultimately for his glory. He's ordered it that way. So we have a choice. We can either submit to that or not. We can either humble ourselves to that or not. Our service, that is our working out of our own salvation, is dependent upon God. It's necessary. We fulfill our life of ministry the same way we enter this life of ministry, or this life of being a saved individual, through humility. It is only when we understand who we are Can God's gift of grace and salvation be manifest in our life to change us? And that's a wonderful gift of God in and of itself. And it goes on. Paul says a couple of verses that I think will be on the screen for you. A couple of uh, verses from 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, there's a recognition right there that there a requirement of humility. There's nothing in us that can accomplish anything for God. We have to understand, as Paul did, that we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as if it was coming from us. Because it's not. Our sufficiency is from God. And he goes on into the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7. However, we have in this treasure, in jars of clay, that's our bodies, We have a treasure in these bodies. What? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the way God has chosen to display His glory to the world. It's to take old, dirty pots that have been fashioned and formed by His gracious hand. That are temporary. Sometimes need repair because they get cracked. Sometimes they are broken completely so that they can be remanufactured into something usable. But we have a treasure in these earthen jars of clay the surpassing power that belongs not to us. It's not in our willpower. It's not in our ability to, to pick ourselves up from the, with the bootstraps and, and make ourselves better. But it's the surpassing power that belongs to God. That is the expression of humility to understand that we can't do it. Even if we wanted to do it, we don't have the ability. So as we grow to be like Christ, and that's what Paul has done in the beginning of chapter 2, remember? He says that let this mind, or take this mind like Christ had. That's the goal of our life. That is the purpose of God working in each of us to make us more like Christ. That, so that while right now we look in the mirror dimly, but one day we are going to see clearly what God has been up to all of this time. It's frustrating, right? Why does God take so much time? Why does He take a lifetime to make me like Christ? Why can't He instantly change me to be perfect? Why can't He just, as soon as I repent and. Place my faith in his wonderful work on the cross. Why can't he just make me like Christ? I don't know. All I know is he takes the rest of my life to do it. And I've got forever to enjoy that reason when I finally figure it out. If God ever displays you know, he may, that might be what makes eternity so great. He doesn't disclose those types of things. But that's what he does. And as we grow to be like Christ in our service for him, We're going to, again, do it as we started. Humility. Jim Berg, in a book that he wrote, Changed into His Image, which is a book, as you can imagine, on sanctification. says the only change that will ultimately be for our good and for God's glory begins with humility. The only change, the only transformation between me and as a sinner into being a child of God, looking like him, sounding like him, being like him, is humility. That is the only change that will be ultimately for our good. 1 Peter chapter 5 reminds us that likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Oftentimes we think of exalting, oh, finally I get my reward. Only, I finally get what I deserve. Oh, finally I get a prize. No, the exalting is becoming like Christ. (laughs) Which, by the way, is a prize. That is a reward. That is something to look forward to. But we're never going to get there until we've humbled ourselves under God's mighty hand. God resists the proud. He says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. When we come to the Lord's table together, you notice that there was not an instruction given. Now, to those of you who are really spiritual, you drink first. To those of you who have read your Bible every day this week, you have an opportunity to eat first. Those of you who gave more money in the offering plate today, you get first dibs on whatever's in the plate. It wasn't that way, was it? We all humble ourselves together. As the pastor leads us, we all eat together. We all drink together. It doesn't matter how many years of seminary training you've had. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You know what? We submit ourselves, we clothe ourselves in humility in such a simple act of worship. We do the same thing as we sing. We may have someone up here leading us in music. But you know, we're singing together. When we teach, we may have someone teaching or leading a class, but you know what? We're studying together. There's, there is none of us. This is coming from someone who has a title in this church, but that doesn't make me any more special than anybody. I have a different role. But I submit myself to all of you. That's what humility requires. Now, does my role give me some authority that some of you don't have? Sure. But even in that, I'm submitting to a higher authority. It's not my idea, it's not my job. It's not not my creation. But it's what God has instructed for us to live together. And there is a humility that all of us should be clothed with towards one another. Because God He opposes the proud. And if, if you haven't read lately just look through the Bible and, and see what happens to those who oppose God there may have been a season in which they seem to succeed in their efforts and in their and, and in their task of thwarting their enemies but the day comes sooner or later Think about examples of humility through scripture and John the Baptizer is, is ultimate for me outside of Christ. You see, in Luke chapter 3, we're told that many people came to John and they were inquiring, man, you're, you're an awesome preacher. You're, you're powerful. This message of repentance, man, people are lining up to, to hear you and people are being baptized because of what you're preaching. Are you the Messiah? And all John could say, I'm just John. Now, there is one coming that's greater than I, of whom I'm not worthy to even unloosen the straps of his sandals. I'm just a messenger. Now, many in our day and age, and I would include myself to some degree because I'm human, there is a temptation sometimes when people laud you with, man, that was a great message, man, you must be... After a while, you start, really? Thanks. Thanks. Makes me feel good about... No, No, I'm just a messenger. There's one ultimately greater than me. He's coming. And He's the one who you need to listen to. He's the one you need to believe in. He's the one who will change your life. I just happen to be the one introducing Him. In our Christian growth group today, conveniently, we were studying... About Isaiah, who in chapter six of his book of prophecy introduces us to a vision that he saw, and he was humble because when he saw in this vision—I mean, this was just a vision. This wasn't even reality. This was a vision that God allowed him to see. He felt knowing that he was a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He was humble. There, in this vision of the throne of God. Because when you see God's glory, you're humbled. He was humbled to the point of service, which is going to take us a little bit further along in our message today. However, we may be a little hard-headed. Sometimes we're a little hard-hearted. Sometimes we, you know, have difficulties humbling ourselves, right? Well, we don't have just a little bit of difficulty. It's impossible for us to humble ourselves. But Jim Berg in that same book I was referring to later gives us an ideas of some ways how God humbles us. Now this is not by any means some list of well let me check this off, that's the way God humbles me or uh oh, God's going to humble me this way. Don't, don't look at it this way. But I just want you to understand from a scriptural perspective ways that God has humbled people in the past. First of all, God can humble us by sending us a problem we can't handle to expose our helplessness. God can expose... Can send us a problem we can't handle to expose our helplessness. Remember last week's Christian growth lesson? Naaman? He was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of honor. But you know what? He had a problem. He couldn't fix it. And it drove him to such humility that he was willing to get into a dirty, muddy river. As God instructed him to do. He had to be humbled and God sent him a problem that he couldn't handle to expose his helplessness. God will send you from time to time problems that you can't handle. And why he, out of his grace and love, allows me to go through problems that I feel like I can't handle and in some temporal way, I fix It's only just a, just a picture of his grace and mercy. But that's one way God can humble us is to send us a problem we can't handle to to expose the fact that we are helpless. Another way he can do it, he can give us a command we won't obey to expose our self-centeredness. Anybody have any of those problems? Is there a command that God has expressly given to everyone through the word of God And you know, it's just, you just find, I can't obey that. Nope, that's a little inconvenient. Nope, that's a little bit too harsh. Nope, that's a little bit too strict. No, that's a little bit too demanding. Think about Jonah. God told him to go to a very specific group of people with a very specific message, and Jonah said, Nope. Not where I was going. And if I went there, I'm not going to live very long. But yet, God commanded him to do it anyway. And through a series of circumstances, humbled Jonah. Even though Jonah didn't want to go, he still went. He still obeyed. And God accomplished his purpose. But there will be commands that God will give that perhaps you'll have a hard time if just a flat out refusal to obey them and he will humble you to expose your self-centeredness saying, no, it's all about me, God. I have this experience a lot. Where I have to look before God and say, God, I'm sorry, this has been about me. And there is for a moment, not lasting nearly long enough, but there is a moment of humility where God says, look how self-centered you are i just obey my command. Another way He can arrange an outcome we can't control to expose our sinfulness. Talk about problems you can't fix. Think about David and his sin with Bathsheba. This was a very powerful man using every resource that he had to cover up his sin, but he couldn't control it and it exposed his sinfulness. God will humble us by showing us Our sinfulness, when we get into ourselves and problems, when we started out, you know what? I'm not going to do it that much. I'm not going to around so many people. I'm not going to let anybody know about what's going on in my heart. I'm not going to let anybody know where I'm going. I'm not going to let anybody know what I did. I can control it. And all of a sudden, the strings start to appear. And you think if you just kind of pull this string, nobody will see the unraveling. But before you know it, you've unraveled your sinfulness. And God can humble us that way. God can also show us a God we can't comprehend to expose our finiteness. Poor Job. Here's a righteous man taking care of his family, being a friend to his neighbors, and out of nowhere, loses it all. And over the course of of several conversations, finally gets to the point where he realizes, you know what, God... I just don't understand who you are. What are you doing here? And God allows sometimes circumstances to make us think, now, how can God let that happen? Where is God at? And he'll let those things happen so that we will be humbled and understand not his problem, our problem. That we're finite. We, we can't understand. We can't go back and as God told Job, Job, where were you <laughs> when I created all of this? Where were you at when all of these things were happening? See, God and God alone is infinite. And sometimes He'll allow us to see a God that we don't understand to just expose the fact that we are finite. We can think of a number of ways. Right? Of how life humbles us as God directs the circumstances in and around our lives. But I don't want to leave you in despair just thinking that, well, God's going to just humble us. What is he humbling us for? Now again, remembering Andrew Murray's quote, humility is simply man's acknowledging the truth of his position and yielding to God's place, knowing that only cha- the only change that will ultimately be for our good is when we humble ourselves, and that is to serve God is Isaiah came to understand. Oftentimes it will look unconventional, particularly to this world, and to us. Thomas Randall, back in 1976, I know that was a really long time ago for some of you in our Christian growth group, we found out just how many events we don't remember because of our age. But back in 1976, Thomas Randall Led the NCAA Division II. it was an NAI school, but they were their statistics were all incorporated in the second division of NCAA basketball and he led the nation in scoring that year His, He had the opportunity having been a recent convert to join this evangelistic team to go to the Philippines so that while they were there you know they'd play some pickup basketball games and then they'd have like you know, a little um, devotional or maybe like a little lesson afterwards or you know once they had the kids together. And so he had an opportunity to do that. Uh, When he got back, because of his success in college, had the ability to try out for the Chicago Bulls. Now, this was before the, you know, the draft became big and, and it was before uh, college athletics was really uh, just like a funnel. This was in a day and age when, relatively speaking, very few people were able to be exposed to such an opportunity to play in the professional basketball league. And so in 1976, he had an opportunity to do that, but he refused to do it. He chose instead to go back to the Philippines. God had worked in his life so greatly in working with those young people there on that evangelistic team trip that he wanted to go back and he wanted to invest his life. But before he went back to the Philippines, you know what he had to do? He had to get some money. So he went and he lived in the Detroit area. So he did some factory jobs there in Detroit for a while. And when he had saved enough money, he sold everything that he had. And all the money that he had saved up and took it all to the Philippines so that he could work building orphanage, teaching young people and counseling them, and would later become uh, to establish World Harvest Ministries. And this is a man who had no formal seminary training. This is a man who had no lifelong uh, history in a church growing up and being mentored by all these great people. This was just a person who, when he took a risk, and exposed himself to ministry, said, you know what? This is life-changing. This this is different. I could go back and I could make, of course, back in the 70s, make maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions of dollars, but I could make a really good living just playing basketball. I've got the talent to do it, but you know what? I'm going to scratch it all. Now, I'm sure he probably played a few pickup games when he you know got back to the Philippines, but you understand, he, he sacrificed something that he could have very easily said, you know what? God's given me this talent. He's given me this talent to play basketball, so I must play basketball. He's given me the ability to do whatever. But he said, no, there's a higher calling. He took a risk. He humbled himself to a what would be ridiculous proposal in our world. Our justification would be, don't you realize how many people you could reach as a professional basketball player? But if you got on TV and after every game that you were able to win and you were the best player and they interviewed you, don't you understand how many times that you could say, well, I just want to thank the Lord for giving us this victory. Now, I'm not trying to demean that. But somehow we've been conditioned to think that that's the way we can be the most productive. Now, he may have been able to do that in front of thousands of people who were ever, you know, kept their television on long enough to see what the post-game interview was like. But think about the hundreds and thousands of people he was able to influence that nobody else would because, well, who goes to the Philippines to do that? Who goes to the Philippines to do much of anything? Do you think that was ridiculous? Do you think that that type of expression of our lives, fill in the blank, what, what is that like to you? What if we did that? Well, let's look at two individuals who did. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin our reading in verse 19. I hope... Now, this is Paul speaking from prison again. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now, he's writing to a church that he established. We looked at it back in Acts chapter 16. Timothy is included in the introduction to verse 1 in which he's also one of those servants who is writing and Paul says from prison I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that you may be cheered by by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely that is naturally of a similar spirit concerned for your welfare for they all speaking of the others that he had to choose from seek their own interest not those of Jesus Christ You know Timothy's proven worth, how, as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come, also. Timothy was going to be a news bearer. Timothy was going to be, once there was a declaration about Paul's situation in Rome, Timothy was going to be sent so that they could hear. But not only that, but so Timothy could also come back and give Paul a report of what was going on at the church at Philippi. But it wasn't so much about what Timothy was going to do that I want us to look at. I want us to see the character of Timothy that made him qualified to do it. Because oftentimes what Christians will do, and I include myself in this group, Oftentimes what we'll do is we'll start trying to find job titles, we'll find job descriptions. What can I do? What can I do? Where can I do? What, what needs to be done? But what we should be thinking about, more importantly, is am I ready to do whatever that is? Because if we're not ready to do whatever God calls us to do, we're not humble enough yet. We've, we've, we've got our, uh, our hooks in something else because we've limited God to, to using us in only certain ways. If we, if we wake up in the morning and say, you know what, God, I know what you call me to do. I'm not going to do anything else but what I've been trained to do and everything that I've had opportunities to do in the past and everything I like to do, I'm not going to do anything else. Then we're limiting what God may be wanting to do. Now that's not to say that He's not going to allow you to do what you desire for if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. We have to remember that we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what is it about Timothy? Was it the fact that he was trained or that he was willing to be a messenger for Paul? No, it was more about the fact that, number one, Timothy had a genuine concern. I have no one like him, Paul says. That word genuinely means literally to be born in wedlock. It was a term that would be used for a child that was born legitimately to married parents as opposed to unmarried parents. And so when we think about it in that context, Paul is saying, Timothy, you can count on it, that he is genuinely concerned for you. He's not out of wedlock concerned for you. He is genuinely concerned for you because that's who he was born to be he has a similar spirit concerned for your welfare well we don't have to look very f- far backwards in chapter 2 to see Paul's exhortation there so if the, in verse 1 so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He was genuinely concerned. That gave Paul confidence in selecting him to be a messenger because he knew he had a genuine... He wasn't just going to be somebody who just flippantly wrote you know, a letter and, and just mailed it off. But this is someone who wanted eagerly to give this message to these particular people from this particular person. But not only did he have a genuine concern, but Timothy was a proven servant. Paul says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their interest. But you know, verse 22, Timothy's proven worth This is someone based on what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 of a young man who learned early on in life from his mother and his grandmother. In Acts chapter 16, as he went with Paul to establish his church on this missionary journey, that he was grew up to be commended by the rest of the church. He became a son to Paul, as we talked about here, and Paul also alludes to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he left to take care of the church when Paul moved on. This was somebody who has proven his worth. Now consider the context in which Timothy was making such a great commitment. Paul writes to him in his last letter, before uh, the last letter we have of Paul before he dies in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. This was the world in which Timothy was living. Because, just because it says in the latter days that, or last days this is what was going to happen, Paul believed he was living in the last days. If you read any history whatsoever about what the Roman Empire was like and the Greek culture was like in which Paul and Timothy were living, you wouldn't take you long to understand things haven't changed so much. We may have been graciously afforded uh, some absence of some of the problems that people in the past have lived through, but what we're experiencing right now in the world in which we live is nothing new. And in many cases, it was worse than what we have yet tasted. And yet, Timothy had proven his character. His genuine concern was evident before also, but Paul knew with confidence he could send Timothy to serve. This environment, we're called to live a life of humble service as well. Life of self-absorbed, self-serving people. We need to understand that this is what our flesh is conditioned to to be a part of as well. Before we start pointing fingers at all these people that we can think of, as soon as we start reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, or 2 Timothy chapter 3 rather, and we start thinking, oh, I know this person, I know those people, I know how they act. Remember, we are all inclined to live that way apart from the grace of God. So what is our important need? That we need to understand that this is what our flesh is conditioned for, but we need to repent from that. We need to understand that Christ's service, which we've already talked about from uh, verses 5 through 8 in chapter 2 here in Philippians, had a purpose. It was done so that he who knew no sin could be made sin for us. So that we who did not know anything about God's righteousness could be made righteous in Christ. So that we could understand that in Christ... We have significance, as Pastor Charlie was preaching about last week. And we have a purpose, but it never strays from pure, unadulterated, genuine humility. And Timothy exhibited that. He was an example. But we have another example here. Epaphroditus. This is the only portion of scripture that we have about Epaphroditus sounds almost like a dinosaur right interestingly enough the the name Epaphroditus had other connotations but in verse 25 we read I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed. That is, he was full of heaviness. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when he was in Gethsemane. Why? Because you heard that he was ill. Have you ever felt bad for other people because they heard that you were ill? Now that's empathy. (laughs) You're the one who's ill, but when somebody that you were concerned about and knew that they were concerned for you found out you were ill, you felt bad for them because they were feeling bad for you. Now, if that's not Christian submission and unity, I don't know what it is. That we are so close to one another that we hurt for when we hurt for one another. Right? Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Can you hear the echoes of what Paul was saying? That, you know, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain you know what, if I, if I continue living, it's for your good. And here Paul is expressing it just a few verses after he talks about his own, his own self, saying, I'm glad God doesn't let everybody die because they're such great help to me. Even though if he wants to go ahead and let me die, I'll be glad to go home. It's kind of like the argument that you may have with your spouse. Like Amy and I, we don't argue about this. We don't talk about it a whole lot because it's not very positive. Uh, but sometimes we'll talk about, you know, you better make sure that I die before you do. Right, Because we don't want to think about life without our spouse. We don't want to be the one left here. Because when they are here, they're such a great help to us. And, but you know what? If I get to die first, then I'm not going to really worry about you and your misery. I'm going to go on to heaven. I'll be with Jesus. And some of you have, have sadly experienced that, that situation. I don't want to make light of it. But when we think about our relationships with people, We get a little selfish that way, right? I don't want you to die because you were such great help to me. God had mercy on you for allowing you to keep on living, but he also had mercy on me because he allowed you to keep on living. Because as Epaphroditus did for Paul, uh, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow if you had died. Paul says in verse 20, I am more more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice, literally being full of joy at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now there is a mouthful that we could say about Epaphroditus here, and I'll try to do it very succinctly and very shortly here. First of all, let's understand how Paul described him. There's a threefold description here that we see quick in verse 25. First of all, he calls him a brother, literally from the womb. And in Christ, he was a brother. He also calls him a fellow worker. This is the first of two words that he uses the term fellow in front of, which just simply means he was a, was a companion. They had something in common. And the first thing, they were a fellow worker. The Greek word here, ergos, is a result of, of or an object of, of employment or work. And that's something that you're working through, your service. And Paul says Epaphroditus is not just a brother. We not only share the same heavenly father, but we also share the same work. And he's also a fellow soldier. Now, oftentimes in our culture, and particularly in athletics, you may hear someone talk about their teammate as, we're going into battle together. We're fighting the trenches together. That annoys me. Because while I've never served in the military, I don't know what it's like to serve in the trenches, and the only people who do are the people who've been there. And for someone to use an analogy of a recreational game, even though it is their livelihood, and even though they ded- dedicate themselves seriously to it, to compare themselves to somebody who is risking their life for someone else, is wrong. Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier because they were both risking their life for others. Now Epaphroditus nearly lost his life. Paul makes that very clear. We don't know exactly what it was, but he became ill almost to the point of death. Why? Because he was taking a gift to Paul from the church at Philippi he was subjecting himself to conditions of traveling on a ship during times of year in which he'd be very susceptible to illness in this part of the world the Mediterranean travel conditions can be very dangerous and harsh your resistance particularly in these days of antiquity your resistance would be very low in very turbulent times. But Epaphroditus risked his life. He submitted himself to doing so to complete what was lacking in Paul's service to them. See, Paul was in prison. <laughs> he couldn't come get the gift. He couldn't, send, he couldn't take the letter himself. He wanted to. But Epaphroditus was the one who did it on behalf of Paul. Paul. And the interesting thing about Epaphroditus' name is uh, there are some scholars who say this idea of risking his life uh, was a term that was, also, it was often used by gamblers. They would invoke the name in, to their god Venus, Epaphroditus, as a term in which they were risking whatever they were gambling on. And so Paul takes this opportunity to use this term risking, describing what Epaphroditus was doing when it came to his own special life. But you know what, this is not the last time we hear of this, is it, throughout church history? Aren't you glad that we can learn of a man named David Brainerd who risked his life being of poor health and ultimately died of tuberculosis? to reach out and to evangelize the Native Americans in the 18th century? Aren't we glad we can learn about a man named William Carey who in the 18th and 19th century went to India and not only subjected himself but his family members to disease that they ultimately died from? Aren't you glad we can talk about Adiram Judson who went to Burma, spent time in prison and his wife was persecuted while he was in prison trying to take care of him? Or Hudson Taylor who went to China and lost numerous children Suffered depression. Missionaries who would say, if it wasn't for my wife, that's the only thing separating me and suicide. A Chinese pastor, like many, who when he left the house church that they studied in, his wife was subject to the police, who when they asked who the pastor was, there's no pastor here. Well, they took her, beat her, Put her in prison as an example to anybody who even thought about having a pasture. These are examples of people and individuals who clearly lived a life worthy of the gospel. People who could take a a song and say, Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad. At any cost. I'm sacrificing. I'm humbling myself. I'm committing myself to whatever. I just want to make sure I'm qualified. I want to make sure that I'm genuine. I want to make sure that I'm usable. Why? We want to bring strangers home. Because we long to see that church is full. That all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. That's why we risk our lives. That's why we subject ourselves humbly before God at any cost. It's easy to read a book or watch a movie that portrays someone's life and say, wow, that's that's one special person right there. No. If it's worth watching or if it's worth reading about, all you can say is that's one humble person right there. That is somebody that God was able to use because they had a genuine concern and a love for people were are proven. They, they, they showed themselves worthy. Living as a citizen of this heavenly kingdom that we've been called to. They work. They're, they're, they're willing to give their life. Because they realize, like in other songs, I, I kept the worship guide up here for a reason. Because they knew that there was no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me from life's first crowd to final death. Jesus commands my destiny. If you're not humble, you can't sing that right. If you're not humble, if you've got a, a list of restrictions on God, if you've got a certain things that you've got to do before you die that doesn't have anything to do with God, then you're, you're lying to God and saying, God, I'm not going to submit to your destiny for my life. But if you believe that there is no power of hell, no scheme of man that can pluck you from your father's hand, and again, by the way, that's not some sort of, oh boy, I've got security in my salvation, so I'll never lose. That's to understand that no matter where you go, no matter what you do for God, He is not going to let you fail. Now, you may consider dying failure. You may consider a lack of converts failure. You may consider a lack of publicity and popularity failure. But sometimes that's a part of God's program. You remember Isaiah that we were talking about? The one who was so anxious, once he had his tongue touched with the coal and he had his sins forgiven, and God said, who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, I'll go. You know where he went? He went to a people who refused to listen to him, who rejected his message, and he was persecuted for it. But it was a success in God's plan because He was humble. Thankfully, the the Bible gives us all we need to talk about because if it was left to me to give you some illustration of my life or some about how to be humble, then we would have wasted our time. In preparation for a message, if you're going to be sincere, you have to kind of analyze the subject matter that you're talking about. And only by the grace of God can Tim or Richard or Chad. Charlie, myself, any of us stand behind a pulpit and preach about humility only by the grace of God. But the fact that I'm no stalwart makes it no less demanding. It's what God has called us all to do. Clothe yourselves in humility. Because God resists the proud. But thank God he uses those who are humble. Epaphroditus, thank you. Timothy, thank you. Paul, thank you. Ultimately, Jesus Christ, thank you for giving us an example of humility that we can follow. Let's pray.